It's Friday, February 10th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We start off with a quiz. Which one of these was an actual plan to combat climate change slash global warming? Which scientific suggestion is on the books? Here we go. One, Ben Bromley, a theoretical astrophysicist at the University of Utah, wants to block the sun by mining the moon of millions of tons of dust and ballistically ejecting it to a point in space where floating grains would partially block incoming sunlight. Is that real? Not will it happen, but did some guy named Ben Bromley with tenure propose that? Did Carlo Ratti, among a group of MIT researchers, propose the feasibility of fighting climate change with a conglomeration of space bubbles that would form a floating raft above the Earth to reflect the sun's rays? Did Professor Devin Sapsford, the Geo-Environmental Research Center head at the University of Cardiff in Wales, propose a system whereby a campaign of bioengineered plankton would adopt natural properties of reflectiveness, thereby reflecting the sun's rays back into space before they could be fully absorbed by oceans. And finally, which is the real one, did University of Arizona astronomer Roger Angel think that 16 trillion flying space robots, each weighing a gram, would be able to deflect sunlight with a transparent film pierced with tiny holes, a plan that relies on a giant electromagnetic gun embedded in a mountain to launch the space robots, which is real. I have news. I lied. Three are real. Only one is fake. I'm not going to go through them again. You have a rewind button. Which one is the fake one that no one actually proposed? Well, there actually is a professor, Devin Sapsford, at the Geoenvironmental Research Center at Cardiff. I'm sorry to have maligned his research or maybe given Professor Sapsford a great idea. But no, reflective krill is not on the table. But apparently, moon dust or space bubble rafts or 16 trillion flying space robots. That is how we're going to get our way out of the problem. So what I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, we are doomed. We're going to overheat. Shut the lights. It's probably too late for that. We'll glow on our own accord. But that's actually not what I believe. I've been reading other news, not just news of the fanciful, news of the mm, implausible, news of the actual. The owner of the world's largest carbon capture facility in Texas, they're going back online. They're going to restore operations for the billion-dollar plant. It was shut down three years ago. But oil demand and oil prices changed, and so maybe maybe they think they're worth it. They spent a billion dollars. If it works, could be, oh, I'm going to say as big a game changer as attacking the moon and hoping for the best. Also, here's a company that knows a little bit about oil and has made more than a theoretical dollar on it, BP. BP has issued a report on peak oil. Not peak oil supplies, that was the usual hand-wringing up until about 15, 20 years ago. Peak demand. BP has said that the demand for oil has already peaked. The challenge will be getting all the alternative sources to the alternative vehicles and the alternative consumers. Actually, not alternative consumers, regular consumers. I mean, you know, we might listen to Smashing Pumpkins. But the thing is, 
all, I mean, I think it's good that we have the crazy, let's say, quite implausible thinking. We wouldn't want to stymie that thinking. But getting less attention to some actual possible things. You know, one, I think, pretty well-grounded report, no pun intended, oil being in the ground, and one billion-dollar plant that is coming back online. I'm not sanguine, but I'm more optimistic, and I think that uh, space shots or butterfly robots will probably not have to be relied on to deliver us from our situation today. Maybe the space robots can be trained to lift those reflective plankton into the stratosphere. On the show today... The different ways that members of Congress pronounce Chrissy Teigen and what that says about the suppression of information. But first, Philadelphia will be vying for their second Super Bowl in five years on Sunday. Okay, if you're like, I don't like football, I'm out. Well, hear me, hear me out. Because Philadelphia has a self-conception as an underdog city. And in fact, there's an iconic piece of public art in the city of brotherly love that's an embodiment of the underdog spirit. I think you know what it is. He ran up the stairs of the Philadelphia Museum, and then they made five sequels, eight, depending on if you count the spinoffs. My guest, Paul Farber, will talk about his new podcast, The Statue. Yes, Rocky Balboa and Paul Farber, up next. The Rocky statue outside the Philadelphia Art Museum is iconic. It's literally iconic. And now WHYY is doing a series that asks questions about the Rocky statue and uses it as a way to ask questions about monuments. Some of these questions, literally taken from the text of the podcast, are, why do millions of people each year from around the world visit Philly's Rocky statue? That's pretty easy to answer. He's an inspirational fictional character. And two, what does a statue celebrating a fictional boxer tell us about how we memorialize some stories over others? Ooh, that's a deep one. Guiding us through that is Paul Farber, the host of the series. He is also the artistic director and senior curator of Monument Lab, a public art initiative that creates new monuments. He's with the University of Pennsylvania in that regard. Welcome to The Gist, Paul. Mike, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So you're a Philadelphian, right? That's right. Have you, now I've seen pictures of you next to the Rocky statue. Some reporter (laughs) will do a story. Hey, there's a monument guy in Philadelphia. This reminds me of the Rocky statue. And you're standing there. Have you ever done the pose? Well, you have to. It's part of being a Philadelphian. (laughs) And, um, you know, I've done it at the top of the steps. I've done it um, in my backyard. Um, do it in the office. I mean, I think what something I have found over the years is that if you just do the pose, you even said the pose. We didn't even say what the pose is. Arms no. raised up. Um, but if you do it in this city, um, people know exactly what and where you're talking about. Yeah. There is this relationship. Like you go to pose next to Rocky and pose as Rocky. And like you're doing both of those things. And I think it speaks to people see themselves in that statue in ways that they don't with many other sites of public art. Well, it's also joyous and uplifting, and it connects you to uh, an experience that you remember, which is watching the Rocky movie or movies. 
And I don't think most statues or monuments, first of all, it would be inappropriate to ape the the pose of, say, the Korean Veteran Memorial Monument. It would be impossible to do so with the Vietnam Monument. What is an obelisk or the Washington Monument? They don't really try to, intentionally or not, um, inspire and evoke most monuments don't as much as this rocky one does. And I think it's maybe in a little bit of a different category. It's in a pop culture category. And that seems to be an important difference. Yeah. You know, I think um, in this work, what what blew me away, you know, I study monuments. We I co-edited a uh, first definitive audit of America's monuments um, with Monument Lab and the Mellon Foundation. And this one is is fascinating. It's seen as pop culture. It's seen as part of a movie series, which it is. But it has greater significance. Four million people go a year. That's Statue of Liberty numbers. That's more than double that go to the Liberty Bell. And that was a big wake-up call for, for me to kind of really take a, a closer look. And I think what, what we see is that, you know, there's not one kind of public art only. There's many different kinds, but I think a lot of the conversations we've been having about public art and about monuments is a question of, do you see yourself in it? Can you, and, and think about all of those statues that are high above us. They are froze, meant to be frozen in time. They're meant to kind of look down on us. And here's a statue that- Yeah, well, they're meant to look down on us. Maybe to look over us is the more benign way of thinking about it, but we're meant to- look up to them. I mean, there are phrases, there are idioms to put on a pedestal is literally our relation, our right. traditional relationship with statues. But about the this audit that you did, what counted as a statue or a monument? Did that big Paul Bunyan figure in, where is it, in Brainerd, Minnesota, did that count? Yeah, I have to, I have to check if that one made it in, but I, I will tell you, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions that went in um, to the process of making that audit is that um, we don't even agree on what a monument is. I mean, of course, monument, as as you mentioned, it can refer to, to a bronze or marble symbol on a pedestal, but we use the word monument to also talk about historic sites of national parks, ruins, even the unintentional monument. Nothing is a monument inherent of itself is what we call them. So for the audit, what we did instead was gather data at the federal, state, local, tribal level to put different sources that were not meant to tell us about monuments, but were meant to tell us about historic properties, put them in a shared space, and then narrow down to a big enough window so that we would have close to 50,000 to read from to understand not just a one-off finding, but what are the patterns and themes across the country that have been built for generations? And what are some of the big, I know this is a little off the statue, but I'm sure it relates. Uh, What were some of the big takeaways and findings? Yeah. um, No, I mean, I think it does all relate. And, and, you know, some of those findings included things that you may know from walking down the street, that uh, monuments have always changed, that the monument landscape is disproportionately white and male, that war and conquest is the most common theme of American monuments. Um, And then finally, that the monuments that we have inherited don't tell us the full story of our country. And I think that's the one that, you know, really pushed us, that monuments are not facts on a pedestal. They are ways that we shape history and render history. We found that in our audit, 
of um, the monuments that we encountered to the Civil War, 1% mentioned slavery. And when I say mention, I mean it's in the title, it's in the plaque, it's in the data that a record keeper kept. We know, you know, we know that 3% um, from our audit showed us of Confederate monuments mentioned the word defeat. Right. Um, this is a WHYY series. A couple years before you even embarked on this series, you wrote a piece for the WHYY website talking about monuments, including Rocky and Benjamin Franklin. And you ask, from such a vantage, would we as witnesses fully register the outcome of the processes that continue to shape the city's monumental landscapes, that we elevate a disproportionately wealthier, whiter, more militaristic, and overwhelmingly male version of the past above others. So we'll take that as true. You did the audit. Rocky doesn't correct any of that. In fact, Rocky plays into all of those things, not just Rocky, but Stallone, certainly as a enormously wealthy movie star. And in the movies himself, his wealth and his, you know, losing his wealth became a huge plot line. He's white, more militaristic. Stallone is Rambo and plays all these action stars. And he was synonymous with militarism and Rambo and overwhelmingly male. So if that's the challenge to overcome the fact that most monuments are playing in those tropes, Rocky can't be seen as part of the solution, can it? This is something that we really sat with in the series and kind of where we got to was that depending on where you are in the city of Philadelphia, we found that the Rocky statue is both extraordinary and ordinary. It's extraordinary because people from all walks of life are lining up every day of the year, no matter the weather, no matter the time of day, to take a picture with Rocky and to be there. It's a pilgrimage. People come from all around the world. And he's a symbol of the underdog spirit, which has um, been profound to see. What's ordinary is that the story in this case of um, a Hollywood figure gets more spotlight than the real life stories, especially of boxers, especially of black boxers in this city. And including those who like Joe Frazier, who trained at the art museum steps, who made a cameo in Rocky one, almost was co-starring in Rocky three. And that when you see the kind of resources and spotlight that those sites get they're they're constantly pushed aside. And so what we tried to do in this series is a both and approach. What we looked at is what is going on with Rocky that's phenomenal that people actually see it um, not as a uh, site of of violence, but one of getting through, getting by. People put their pain there, their trauma, their their inspiration in really fascinating ways. And how do we also make sure that we're not just looking in one direction, but we understand that relationship of things that happen on and off the pedestal. And so we try to do is have it be complex, but but make sure that all of those stories, the full story is told. Mm-hmm. I listened to your Joe Frazier episode, and I know a lot about Joe Frazier. Um, the problem with a statue to him, and there is a statue and there should be, he was a great fighter, but to argue that a statue to him would take the place of Rocky is getting back to the tension between the mythological and the real. So Rocky, Mm -hmm. though portrayed as an imperfect figure, was crafted to be so imperfect only so that we would uh, identify with his flaws as challenges and root for him. Joe Frazier's imperfections, which you didn't get to in your episode, run along the lines of he was arrested for 
beating a woman, the mother of his child. He was arrested for gun possession. He hated Muhammad Ali, and that was justified. Muhammad Ali was unbelievably cruel to him and used racist slurs against him. But then Joe Frazier refused to call him Muhammad Ali. And when he got Parkinson's, he said it was God's will. And he once said that uh, if he was up there in the Atlanta Olympics, he'd have pushed him into the flame. So how do you have, how do you really have as celebrated a statue? And this is not a debate about Joe Frazier. He's, he just exemplifies when you deal with real people, you deal with real problems. It's the antithesis of what we're trying to do in terms of monuments. Yeah. I mean, in, in episode three, we cover Joe Frazier's story from a number of angles. We talk about the ways he is and isn't rem- remembered in the city. We talk about some of the challenges, both the bitterness um, with the story, with his relationship with Muhammad Ali and also his political allegiances um, in this city in particular, um, his um, longstanding um, support of um of former mayor and police chief Frank Rizzo. Um, And I I think we wanted to touch on that because it's important to say it. What we tried to focus on was the legacy that he has left. And the legacy that he has left is a complicated one. He's not a forgotten figure. He is a person who has a street named after him. There's a statue that was dedicated after his death. His former gym has been a part of a longstanding struggle to kind of save black um, history sites in the city. What we wanted to do was ask the question of what does it mean to have a story related to Rocky, so related that it kind of shares in part his DNA and have it um, receive a different level of spotlight. But I know you say you're asking questions. At some point, there have to be some answers. And asking questions does sound neutral. But to quote a movement that you've covered, you know, museums aren't neutral and questions mm-hmm. aren't neutral. And so I came away, especially from the Joe Frazier episode, and I hate to pick on Joe Frazier, but him being held up, it was, it was presented in the form of a question. But him being held up, the question was, why Rocky? Why not Joe Frazier? And my answer, y- you didn't give it, was informed by a lot of the stuff that wasn't in the episode, was that why not Joe Frazier? Is He's an extremely problematic figure. And he is, if, if these are the problems with monuments, the white, militaristic, wealthy, et cetera, um, he's not the solution. And I don't know that any real people are the solutions or can be. Uh, I don't even know if that's the trend in monuments. Well, you would tell me. I mean, is it the trend more towards abstraction and ideas and maybe even an abstraction of an idea of a real person like uh, Martin Luther King's The Hug, which just was unveiled in Boston? The key here is that there is no one trend. There is no one answer. We are looking at hyper-local histories and stories that play out in patterns across the country and beyond. And I think if anything, some of what you mentioned, this is playing out on a, on a daily basis. And we want, we really want a single fix. I talk to mayors, city council people, museum leaders, and everyday residents. And of course, there's this longing for like, let's fix the problem. What I want to point out is this problem is deeply rooted. This is as old as the country itself was the first monument takedown was July 9th, 1776. George III toppled in, in lower Manhattan, melted yes. down in part for revolutionary war bullets. So this, yes, we're in a new moment of this, but like 
we, we struggle with how we represent the past and the present. And this is to me indicative of that. I will tell you, I've had thousands of conversations in public spaces in Philadelphia alone around monuments. And going back nearly a decade, you say the word monument in Philadelphia. You just say it. Two names came up constantly. Rocky Balboa and Joe Frazier. It was in the ether of the city. And so I think that was really fascinating to us going into this. We did try to push the conversation about, you know, about, about Frazier and about other kind of stories and recognizing just that deep down the complexity. But I, I think that out of this, you know, some of those solutions that you're mentioning, there isn't one fit, but there's a lot of examples out there. A lot of them involve the process of making monuments are as important as the outcome. So you can't have a different, if you can't have a different outcome, if you don't change up the way, and largely the way that we've been doing this is someone with a lot of time, money, and power makes it happen. And at the same time, what we also have seen is that people who don't have the time, the money, and the official power, they have power nonetheless. They build their own monuments or they gather around ones that exist. I've seen that in Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, environmental movements. In a way, it's happening at Rocky at the statue and the steps, because that is more accessible as an art space than any museum anywhere that we have here. People find great meaning in going there to a variety of ends. And I think it's worth us, you know, when we're talking about what's the solution, we have to really, we have to look back and what got us here. In Minneapolis, there's a statue of Mary Tyler Moore throwing her hat in the air. Mm -hmm. Mary Richards, it would be, since that was a fictional character. In Milwaukee, there is a statue of Fonzie. They call it the Bronze Fonz. Is the Rocky statue more like them or not like them? And are the differences just ones of popularity and resonance as cultural figures? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've tried to take a look at, you know, what are the pop culture statues? And of course, you could say, yeah, they're all in the same family. But I, I would argue against that because one... The Rocky statue's status right now, um, it, it's, it's one of the most visited places, if not the most visited places in Philadelphia and, and rivals any number of our most famous monuments and memorial sites in this country. Two, the relationship that this object appeared on screen in not just Rocky Three, but Rocky Five, other movies as well, mm -hmm. um, and has been, you know, appeared in anything from Super Bowl commercials to Simpsons episodes to video games. You, there's a version of the Rocky um, video game where you could be Rocky Balboa fighting the Rocky statue. Like this has a life of its own. I think, but I think your question is a great one because. What comes forward? Like, what are we looking forward to? And I think that Hollywood and media is going to shape some of the next generation of monuments we have. So the last thing I want to ask you about is Rocky, the statue is a visual representation of a character played by a man, but your podcast features another visual representation of this. The tile art is Rocky <laughs> posed as the Leonardo da Vinci Vitruvian man. Listeners will maybe be able to recall that this is the figure centralized within uh, different circles. And da Vinci argued that he, this was the perfectly proportioned man. Um, 
I understand it's a, it's a really good arresting visual and it shows Rocky as, uh, you know, central and as part, it, it associates him with antiquity where Leonardo da Vinci is. But do you think that there is something to, should we look at Rocky as an idealized man or the statue idealized the perfect form or I think maybe unlike most statues, the imperfections, not of the statue, but of the character are what make it so compelling. You know, unlike Joan of Arc, it's not it's not mm-hmm. her imperfections that are being celebrated or the Statue of Liberty, uh, a cipher, if you will, or even Ben Franklin, though he was quite a character. It's not his imperfections that put him on City Hall three times. Mike, I love your question. I, I fully agree with you. One thing that we looked at in the making of the statue was that it had to balance the status of a champion with the pathos of someone who's vulnerable. Um, I, I don't know if I would even call it the victory pose. It's a pose of overcoming your limits. It's a pose of meeting challenges. And I think that that the the monument, as we understand it, is one of both pride and pain. It's He's the patron saint of the underdog. People go there when they're going through medical treatments or tough times in their family or job interviews, and they go there to draw strength and power. Um, that, that changed my perspective on this statue. And I, and I think it's part of this larger story that, that makes this site, again, part of, part of something that's um, where life and art are constantly blurring in meaningful ways. Paul Farber is director of Monument Lab. He also serves as senior research scholar at the Center for Public Art and Space at the University of Pennsylvania Weitzman School of Design. He is the host of the new podcast series, The Statue, which I recommend consuming after two raw eggs and giving a hug to your dog's butt kiss <laughs> and your turtle's cuff and link. Thanks so much, Paul. Mike, thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Yesterday, I brought you news of what the Republicans deemed an issue so important that it was the first order of business of the House Oversight Committee. When Twitter suppressed the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop for two days. My takeaway, this topic should have been taken away from the Republicans who led the committee. But as is their want, they proceeded with alacrity. Let's just agree on the facts, and I think agree on the interpretation, and by let's, I mean you and I, we're not going to convince Jim Jordan. One is, though you can see why the story seems suspicious, it was more or less legish, pretty legitimate. Laptop existent, supposed items on laptop alleged, borne out, embarrassing for Hunter, yes, linked to Joe, though strongly implied in the article, never said. Even so, this was, like I said, a two-day suppression on one social media platform, which isn't used by 80% of the public. The result of which was probably that more people knew about the story because it was banned than would have known about it had it been allowed to be shared, retweeted, and forwarded like any normal makeup tutorial or dunk on Chris Pratt for saying something vaguely supportive of Jesus. Then again, there's another way to look at it, to take the words of one particular unhinged Republican, Representative Pat Fallon. 
17% would have changed their vote if they had known the contents and evidence of the New York Post story. President Trump lost key states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin, by collectively just over 100,000 votes. And if this is accurate, this poll, 3.2 million votes could have swung. And he only needed a teeny fraction of those 3.2 million. That decision almost certainly changed the result of the 2020 presidential election. Yes, yes, that's insane. It's actually more insane than Marjorie Taylor Greene using her time to just complain to the former executives, why'd you ban me? The answer is spreading vaccine misinformation, as if this were a matter of national concern. But at least Marjorie Taylor Greene was just solipsistic, not completely delusional. By the way, I'm a member of Congress and you're not. Fact check, true. If you can't tell, I did watch all five hours of the hearing. I'm not here to torture you with most of it. Even on an issue of questionable importance, though, I do think you get a key insight into how Congress works. One way it works is that each side will never, ever concede a point that might be favorable to their opponents. And no one will ever rebut an assertion that seems to help their own side, even when it's not true or actually doesn't. So there was no other Republican who insinuated, as Fallon did, that this was the event that swayed the election, but no one scoffed at it. No one even gently walked it back if they had an R after their name. There was nothing gentle going on in this hearing. Donald Trump was not the only world leader whose presence on Twitter was interrogated. Like all of Twitter's users, the Ayatollah is subject to the same set of rules. Yeah. Also subject to the rules at the behest of Donald Trump were certain celebrities who Gerald Donnelly, 72-year-old Democrat from Virginia, attempted to reference accurately. At 11, 11 p.m., Donald Trump heckled two celebrities on Twitter, uh, John Legend and his wife Chrissy Tagan, and referred to them as the musician John Legend and his filthy-mouthed wife, unquote. Ms. Tegan responded to that email. So it fell to the youngest member of Congress, 26-year-old Maxwell Frost of Florida, to correct the record. He asked former Twitter moderator Anika Collier-Navaroli to actually quote the actual woman who was actually named. And I think it's from uh, Ms. Tegan. What was the tweet about? Would you like me to give the direct quote? Yeah. Um, Please excuse my language. This is a direct quote, but Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy ass bitch. Come on, that alone is justification for Congress spending time on this. But Navaroli, though she nailed that one, I thought, did represent a strain of thought in the content moderation world that isn't scandalous. It's definitely not illegal, but it is restrictive and. I'm sympathetic to the argument that it's more restrictive than it needs to be. Navaroli articulated her job as asking. So whose free expression are we protecting at the expense of whose safety? And whose safety are we willing to allow to go to the wind so that people can speak freely? Which sounds fine, except I don't see why grounding it in the identity, who we are protecting and who gets free speech, is the important thing. The identity of who requires safety or who expressing opinions, a legitimate safety concern for anyone has to be seriously considered, as does the free expression of anyone. And multiple times, Navaroli, the one witness Democrats called, not ones who were subpoenaed by Republicans, she articulated a theory of safety that I didn't buy. For instance, this expression, which she cited for its potential for danger. 
I don't remember exactly what news article that it was in, but it was a news article that I had read in which the former president said that he liked to send out his tweets like little missiles. To me, that sounded exactly like weaponization of a platform in his own words. And yet Twitter was not concerned. Yeah, it's Trump saying it. But referring to your missives as missiles or your pen as poisonous, or your statements as barbs or darts, it's not actually dangerous. She repeatedly criticized Twitter's policy for not banning statements like locked and loaded. So the rule was if a user says, I'm going to shoot a gun at you, or if they were to threaten someone, or if they were to talk about the gun they have and the havoc that would ensue, that is bannable. But just saying locked and loaded was not bannable. And she thought it should be because before January 6th, people were saying locked and loaded. Okay, but they also say that before lots of other events where there is no harm. I mean, it's one thing, and it's very rhetorically useful to say, let's look at January 6th, let's go back and see all the things that people said beforehand, those are the things that should be banned. You have to look at every time they said things when there was no harm. If you banned locked and loaded, you probably have to ban calls for burn it all down during street protests over George Floyd. I'm against both bans. It seems an impossible position. They say locked and loaded, then they storm the Capitol. Yeah, but they say locked and loaded and then they tailgate outside Alabama versus Georgia. And by the way, no one with a loaded gun actually entered the Capitol. That's a little bit of a didactic point, I know. I hate to contrast Republican ridiculousness with Democratic imperfection. And by the way, there was another highly imperfect moment where newly elected congressman and former lead counsel in the first Trump impeachment, Dan Goldman, said the New York Post story was a lie when it actually wasn't a lie. But that aside, just as Twitter is a really poor forum for nuance and understanding, Congress is an even worse forum for policing Twitter. However you do it, you'll always make mistakes. The it being content moderation, which is, I think, impossible. But the it's also congressional oversight of a small misstep against the backdrop of a torrent of information. That is more than impossible. That's pretty much designed to be a disaster. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST producer and Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. As the COO, she enjoys the RPO, the run pass option. She's been talking about it all week. She thinks it's a key to Jalen Hurts unleashing the offense. I don't know about that. The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oom Peru, G Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. Thank you.